Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is a partnership between the Department of Criminal Justice and the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Department of Criminal Justice. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics related to government. Some may be surprising and some may not. So please enjoy. Welcome to episode 33 of the Let's Talk Government podcast, Heavy Metal, Rock and Roll, Politics and History. This is going to be a fun one. I'm joined by Dr. Amelia Pridemore from the Department of Government and Dr. Matt Lewiza from the Department of History. And he's also currently our Dean of the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences at Minnesota State University, Mankato. Dr. Pridemore has been my guest several times, but I wanted to introduce you to Dr. Lewiza. He has areas of interest of research, including US history, US foreign relations, and the Cold War. He's also taught a course called U.S. Rock, Music, and American Society. So thank you both for joining me today. So I guess a very good starting point is let's talk a little bit about music as a form of political and historical communication in the U.S. What What do you mean by saying that it's a form of communication? So one of the ways that Dr. Nancy Love has argued that music is used about as political communication is that she said, historically speaking, when we transitioned from oral to literate societies, a lot of people, particularly those from historically underrepresented groups were absolutely cut out of the social and political dialogue. Because if you look at access to education for years on end, you know, some forms of education were literally denied to women and minorities. So the styles of communication that became the most preferred were those that were associated with a, uh, with a higher class, generally those of white men. So what happens is if you pluralize your forms of communication that are in the social and political dialogue. In other words, you're not just listening to a politician's speech, but you're also listening to say a politically oriented song or um, a piece of visual art, right? That may communicate an ideal. When you pluralize these communication styles, you actually create a more democratic society and you have more voices in the social and political discourse. Sorry, so Matt, so a, you taught a history course on rock and roll music in American society. How do you see music as a form of historical communication then? Well, that I mean, it's a great question and it really goes beyond the confines of what I taught in my class, which really, um, it, you know, rock and roll arguably starts late 40s. So what I did was I took it back further um, to the, you know, the African-American roots of rock and roll music, which you can go all the way back to uh, the songs that slaves would sing on Southern plantations um, that would really um, clarify um, the, just that they well understood the nature of their servitude and um, were not happy with that state of servitude one bit. And so that certainly goes on. 
And then to fast forward to the late 1940s, the interesting thing about post-World War II society with music as a form of communication, I think, is um, rock and roll emerged as really um, an oppositional force, but it, it did so in an environment where um, just all forms of popular, of um, just, just general um, popular entertainment were becoming widely commercialized and becoming more national as far as the audience. So the ability for musicians to speak to, I guess, a larger group, you could say, really became on the one hand navigated by the emerging music industry or the changing emerging music industry, top 40 radio, records, so forth and so on, that were looking for products to sell. And then on the other hand, musicians of various types looking to break in and, and often create a kind of voice that would address social and political issues. And then that certainly um, gets contested throughout the rest of the Cold War 20th century and continues in a modified form today. Well, it's amazing because if you think about it, we live in a society where we hear artists from all over the United States and the world. But back when you start, started talking in the 1940s, a lot of exposure was only local. So those messages had to get out nationally. So, all right. So you kind of started with your time frame of the rock and roll there. Where does metal, heavy metal, whatever kind of metal you want to call it, fit in with rock and roll? I'm going to open this up to either one of you. Um, so... Here's how metal, uh, how I bridge over from broader musical communication to metal. So what the kind of voice that metal brings in specifically is more, is generally speaking, a more dissident voice in society. Somebody who uh, bucks against the mainstream, a lot of times they're not exactly happy with how mainstream society, whether it be politicians, mainstream media, um, their parents, <laughs> whoever it may be, um, they may have some issues with those groups, right? Um, often kind of angry. And so what metal does is it not only gives them an outlet to express just anger, but it also gives them a way to do so in a way that comes at the people that they are not happy with and the institutions that they're not happy with. Now, how does this work? So Richard Floker, one of the things that's unique about a lot of metal communication is that it does not use euphemistic language or very rarely uses it. And when it comes to how it describes social issues, it's just raw, it's in your face, it tells it, tells it like it is no holds barred versus uh, saying something polite as a way to kind of, oh, let's not offend anybody, shall we? But one thing that's argued is that when you use euphemistic language, you actually exert more violence on a disenfranchised group. Even if your lyrical content is violent, which has been a criticism of a lot of heavy metal music. The thing is, is if you 
one one argument can be made is that if you are sanitizing the situation, you're actually exerting a form of violence on that group by not ex uh, not showing what their reality is. So Matt, I'm going to kind of throw it over to you since, I mean, I'm going to just confess right on air here. All three of us are metalheads and we're <clears throat> a little <laughs> older than 18. So we've been this way for quite a while. What is it about heavy metal music that captures people? I mean, what do you think, Matt? This is an opinion thing. What about it captures people? Oh, I, well, opinion thing, I'll just, well, you could just start by saying it's inherent awesomeness, but... Uh, <laughs> But I guess we need to go a little deeper than that, right? Um, well, let me throw a bomb in there and just say, how would you define metal? I think, you know, that's because I think what, what Amelia is getting at with um, the sense of how lyrics are perceived by the audience gets to that whole idea of authentic or, or authenticity, which has been, I think, a really, really big deal among metal fans since its origins late 1960s to early 1970s as far as what metal is and what it isn't you know so you know we could probably spend an hour just debating whether or not like as Robert Walzer puts in one of his books and but some of my friends have said it too like is rush heavy metal the resounding answer i think for most of us would be you know hell no but if you look at it on paper, you'd have a good case. So maybe we should talk about, you know, what, what is metal and just kind of throw it back out there. It was like, what, cause that I think answer is like, what makes it, I think so compelling to a lot of people. Actually, that's a great point, Matt. You know, the same controversies around Nickelback, right? Are they a heavy metal <laughs> band or not? No, they throw out a metal song every once in a while. They've got like two or three in their catalog, but they're not a heavy metal band, right? Right. So, so what do you guys think? What do you define as heavy metal? What do you expect in a heavy metal band? I expect them to just vibrate my rib cage with the bass and the drums and then have the most awesome guitar riffs. And to me, the vocals are kind of at the end of it, because if I don't feel the guitar, the bass and the drums, I'm not I'm not vibing with it. So what do you guys think? I think for me, a lot of um, a lot of it is kind of kind of the way you described it, you know, the th you know, thinking less like an academic and thinking like the the uh, 14 year old who, <laughs> who, uh, who latched onto this and uh, actually decided to take it onward into making a career out of studying it for some odd reason <laughs> but you know thinking back to the teenager uh dr pride Moore, i would say that probably just the intensity is is just one of the things that just drew people like me into it um yeah it's it's loud it's intense uh one of the things in terms of sound that's uh, that often defines it is a very dissonant sort of sound. So not to go too deep into musical theory, but uh, one of the things that a lot of metal bands, particularly Black Sabbath pioneered in the old, uh, in the days of yore was using a lot of musical um, tunings, uh, strumming patterns, et cetera, that was designed purposefully to kind of rattle your cages. It wasn't designed, it wasn't 
meant to be pretty and on purpose. We are going to show you something raw and ugly. And that's what, and that's what we want. It's no accidents. Um, so that, that kind of ugliness along with the intensity, I think is uh, some of the key things that you can often find in metal. Yeah, I think I would agree. And I'd say also to me, the visual imagery and overall vibe is really important. So for example, I think probably we'd all agree that Motley Crue in some way or form is a metal band, right? I mean, we could just get bogged down on whether or not they're just metal versus hair metal or something, but, yep. um, but they're a metal band, but they covered Helter Skelter, which was a Beatles song on the White Album. And if you listen to the original recording, it sounds as metal as anything that Zeppelin or Deep Purple did, but probably not, you're not going to get too many people raising their hands saying that the Beatles were the first metal band, right? So I think, um, you know, when you, when you just think about what a metal band looks like, um, it, you know, I think it's, it's pretty eclectic and it's flexible. It doesn't have to be leather doesn't have to be spandex. Um, it, you know, and now that a lot of them are aging, it doesn't necessarily have to be long hair. I'd say, you know, you could throw all of them in together and you'd have, you'd have a good start to it. Um, you know, as long as, you know, but it's definitely not um, the sweater vests and ties from like the late fifties. It's not, it's not the matching suits of say, early Motown with the four tops, Temptations, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, even though there's some overlap with the letter, with the leather, like with punk, um, I think you can pretty much often tell apart visually punks from metalheads. There might be a little bit of overlap there. Um, and I'd say with the visual look, I would include that with stage performances, um, album art, and, even it's not really visual, but the, just as far as identifiers go, like the names of the bands, you know, I mean, like you hear Napalm Death and it's probably not a folk band, right? <laughs> well, I'll go to one of my favorite groups is Metallica. And if you just even start looking at the discography, part of what I expect out of a metal band is not to toe the line and do the social norms, right? Because I mean, some of my favorite songs for Who the Bell Tolls, the Enter the Sandman, One, Nothing Else Matters. I mean, when you just start going through that, it's like, you don't have to follow the mainstream. There's other paths you can take. And most of my metal songs I really enjoy are talking about that. So, so that kind of brings us back kind of to our topic, which was a good idea to define metal. But how does metal help those that are looking at counterculture, anti-culture outside the norms how does that figure into what metal is to uh, politics and society in general? I think one of the things that you mentioned, uh, Dr. Loiza mentioned the, uh, the differences between metal and punk. One of the things that's been seen as a dividing point between metal and punk in terms of uh, political communication has been that a lot of times metal is seen as an individualistic rebellion versus punk being a more collective rebellion. So uh, so for example, metal is uh, more about standing out on your own, being your own person versus 
hey, everybody, we don't like what the man, uh, the man is doing. So let's all get together and, and uh, let him have it. You know, metal is, um, well, I'll, I'll use a quote from Maria Brink, uh, the front woman from In This Moment. So she's known, for example, uh, you know, we talk about aesthetics, but sometimes, uh, sometimes a lot of people buck, uh, buck the norm. So she's, uh, she's blonde, attractive woman, and kind of makes, makes it known that, yeah, this is, this is me and who I am. She'll often uh, dress in like tutus and pink uh, when she performs on stage. And people have come to her and said, like, why are you dressing, you know, all girly girl when you're on stage? Why aren't you wearing black? And she says, well, I am being me as an individual. And isn't that what metal is all about? So it, so in a way, it's, it's, uh, it provides that avenue for those who just kind of want to go out on their own versus, um, versus, okay, maybe I, I want to stand up to the man, but I want to do it with, with a group of like-minded people. Sometimes, uh, sometimes wanting to just step out on your own is, is more appealing than uh, trying to organize. I think if you look at the origins of metal and how um, metal fans since the 1970s were perceived, by the mainstream, it, it kind of feeds into that. And the oppositional culture is, I think, perpetrated by that broader sense of mainstream society, whether or not it's the media, church, teachers, parents, whatever, um, really, I think, taking a very early um, angle on metal music and metal fans as really a unsophisticated, form of music that really um, doesn't have much artistic merit. Um, you know, and scholars have destroyed that and, you know, just examined how many, uh, you know, just metal guitarists were classically trained for, you know, for example, but just, you know, a really uh, looking at metal as a derivative form of art with um, very, very troubled and perhaps not so smart burnouts that listen to it right so <laughs> I think from those early origins you have that 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 sense of us versus them that carries on into different forms today um, you know you go from a, I think primarily at, at its origins a um, very much a white male um, audience and that changes over time, but you know, in the '70s, when all the attacks on um, metal going into '78, I think are well, it's um, it's violent, dark, sometimes satanistic music that um, you know it appeals to youth and can have this mesmerizing um, kind of uh, Pied Piper effect on it. It really, really sends alarm bells and, and that gets manifested through a lot of the controversies in the 1980s. Well, and the drug culture, right? The drug culture associated with heavy metal until you realize it's actually there among all music genres. But all right, so this actually brings me to, since we're in the 70s and 80s here, let's spend a little time talking about the PMRC, which was the Parents Music Resource Center. What was the impact of PMRC and how did it play into heavy metal politics and history? 
I would say that the um, overarching uh, narrative about the PMRC, uh, when we look at it uh, now in the present day, at the beginning, the overall impact of the PMRC controversies was that the music industry saved itself from government regulation, but in doing so found itself self-censoring a whole lot more. So there was sort of a, there was, there was a chilling effect that happened in the immediate aftermath of the PMRC. The thing is, is now, especially with technology where you can, you can even bypass, uh, you know, not only radio stations, but you can bypass record labels, the whole nine yards. Now it's uh, basically it's uh, every, all of that's out the window now. So we went from contracting in terms of the content that, uh, that was released to no holds barred in terms of what's out there now with technology. You don't have to worry about, uh, you don't have to worry about Tipper Gore if you've got a YouTube channel, you know. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Matt, what yeah, do you she, think? I was going to say she would have not. She was not ready for the internet back in um, the early '80s. Um, yeah, I think I think the PMRC is a great window into shifting political tides that um, you know you see with the rise of Ronald Reagan first as California governor. Um, you know, with uh, the counterculture really manifesting itself really strongly um, in the Bay Area and then nationwide. Uh, You know, Reagan makes a bid that comes pretty close to unseating Jerry Ford in 1976 as the Republican presidential nominee. Doesn't make it, but it's close. And he's riding um, that, that broader... Uh, theme of family values, uh, of course, anti-communism too. But once he becomes president, I think um, it, the, what the PMRC shows is that it's certainly not just Reagan. I mean, Tipper Gore obviously was the the wife of then uh, Senator Al Gore, the Tennessee Democrat. Um, so I guess you had some bipartisan consensus on censorship with, uh, I think, I think the four founding members of the PMRC were were nicknamed the Washington Wives because, you know, they were they were pretty heavy hitters. They had influence, and I think uh, their campaign. You know, for those of you who who might not know much about the PMRC, you know, this this group of um, I would say self appointed moral arbiters of what was right and what was wrong were extremely well connected at the time. Um, as, um, as, uh, Professor Pridemore noted, and you can call me Matt. I mean, I guess we're metalheads, so <laughs> in Loiza metalhead, Matt is definitely, but, uh, but at any rate, I digress. Um, you know, so with those, you know, well-connected Washington wives, um, leaning on the music industry and say, Hey, basically, you know, you guys got to cut it out and put warning labels on your music and really you know it was not just warning labels i was thinking i think it was more like you know keep an eye on those artists that you even have to think about put putting warning labels on right they had uh had their top 15 
filthy 15 list of songs. I think about half of them, maybe slightly over half of them were metal songs. Mm -hmm. And the whole pervasive idea was to protect um, gullible American children from things like sex, violence, and, and the occult. And um, I think as, uh, you know, as, as you've pointed out, um, you know, you just kind of think, oh boy, you guys don't know what's coming in about 15 or so years, you know, with uh, the internet, YouTube, things like that. But it was um, certainly um, something that was pretty captivating for Americans at the time, whether or not they were kids buying music or musicians. I, I mean, if you remember, um, Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister testified at the Senate hearings that the PMRC uh, instigated and pretty much destroyed that stereotype that we were talking about earlier about, you know, the musician, have metal musicians and their fans just be, being these burnout idiots. Mm-hmm. He took them to school. <laughs> yeah, I remember that when he actually, uh, that was purposely done. He said he actually walked into the hearings uh, looking like the stereotypical, as you put it, burnout idiot. And he actually wrote his speech that he delivered to Congress on a piece of wadded up notebook paper. And he said, he, you know, speaking in retrospect, he says, here I came in there and I looked like the bad kid with this homework and man, they thought I was just going to be an idiot. And then boom, he just lit uh, lit a fire underneath them and how eloquent he was and just how boom he just came right at him with uh, when he was attacked mm-hmm. uh, for example when they mentioned uh, the Twisted Sister song Under the Blade and um, it was seen as uh, some kind of like cult ritual type of deal uh, he, he, he explained that the inspiration was uh, his friend being scared about surgery and <laughs> And um, so he, when said that Tipper Gore had thought that the song was about uh, sadomasochism, well, you know, somebody looking for uh, references to surgery would find them. And if Mrs. Gore was looking for references to sadomasochism, she would have found them too. It's all in the beholder. So yeah, D, but the thing was, is D. Snyder like like you mentioned just absolutely destroyed them and part of the way he did that was just not letting them know what was coming by them by himself walking in like they would expect and starting to begin like he would expect you know unwatting the piece of paper right and then he had him (laughs) yeah well and And the or sorry pratt pratt go ahead no, go ahead, Matt. That's fine. I was just going to say the other thing, of course, is that um, from a parental point of view, what's interesting that they picked those fifteen. I guess what I'm getting at is there. You know, there are certainly some elements in um, in heavy metal lyrics, or by that point, MTV videos and just visual imagery that I think you could at least throw out the day, debate and be fair and say, yeah, I could see where that would be objectionable, right? Um, I think Wasp is on that filthy 15. So I was like, yeah, you might have a case there. Or, you know, there was a lot of um, uh, or considerable attention given to um, 
1981 song Suicide Solution and that that question disproved them, but the big debate on the 80s as to whether or not um, Ozzy's lyrics promoted teen suicide. Um, you have a replay of that in 1990 with Judas Priest. Um, as uh, you know, we might touch on later, I think, um, when it comes to issues like um, misogyny, probably others, you know, they're, I, again, is it exclusively metal and not other genres? Of course not. But I think, you know, you, you couldn't deny that those themes would be there. And I think that's probably what gave the PMRC um, at least some support as the 80s went on. Well, you actually, Matt, you just kind of brought up what I was going to. I laugh because the Twisted Sister song that's on the Filthy 15 is We're Not Going to Take It. It's like of all the songs, the Twisted Sister, that's the one they put on there. Some of these are just kind of hilarious. So. But this yeah, is like, where did that come from? It's like I could have right. I could have given you 10 better songs to put on that exactly. list. Exactly. So this actually is kind of leading us into the next area I want to kind of talk about is kind of some politics. You know, how what is the influence of not just heavy metal, but rock and roll? Because I'm going to point towards Rage Against the Machine. It's considered it is a rock band kind of skirting the line a little bit, but it is a very political rock band. And there are cities that are afraid of Rage Against the Machine performing in their city because of of things that have happened in the past. But what do you both see as the impact of rock and roll and heavy metal on politics and getting people involved in politics outside of a conventional norm? I think in a way, you know, you mentioned Rage Against the Machine. It's it's um, it's sort of, uh, shall we say, kind of speaks to somebody who might find C, uh, CNN boring. Um, one thing, uh, one thing about you know, listening to a blistering solo from, and uh, I'll uh, yes, I'll admit my bias. Uh, one of my all-time favorite guitarists is Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine. Um, but, you know, there's something that's just in general more fun about, lis- uh, about listening to some of Tom Morello's extraordinarily, uh, not only just blistering, but just really out there kind of use of effects and whatnot. And the thing is, is, you know, who can, who can say that that's as... Uh, uh, that CNN could do something just as interesting, right? <laughs> so when you're talking about somebody who might, especially somebody younger, who might just find politics to be boring, this can be a way of saying, you know, like, hey, this isn't exactly, you know, your dad's way of being po- political and, uh, and interjecting yourselves in the political dialogue. And, you know, like I said, it, it opens the door, uh, just like Nancy Love said, to different people. Yeah, I would agree. I think, um, and it really, um, I'm, I'm kind of thinking back to what I've looked at really, really um, carefully in teaching classes and even kind of looking at just some of my foreign relations work where you see, particularly in the 60s, more folk activists than some mainstream groups coming out and um, arguably at least trying to influence larger groups of people with specific um, political stances, you know, whether or not it's um, 
John Lennon and give peace a chance, things like that, or, or, um, you know, Peter, Paul and Mary, I guess I'm kind of curious as to Amelia, where you see metal fitting into that, because I think, um, you know, as you pointed out, if you look at early metal and punk and metal, more or less, at least at that point, taking more of the individual, um, liberty argument um you know how how does that really manifest itself into something that's more explicitly political i think yeah tom Morello definitely fits in there's some other more songs i could see that kind of fit in on the periphery and then probably more kind of just um some bands that are just unapologetically non-political party bands i guess for lack of a better word you know I think uh, one of the things is, is sometimes uh, kind of what uh, Floker, the same guy who argued about euphemistic language, has said, music doesn't have to be overtly political, like Rage Against the Machines, for example, to be political and to be politically uh to be political communication. So one, uh, so some of the examples he uses um, are songs that depict stories of war. Uh, one of them being my all-time favorite song, uh, Alice in Chains' Rooster, uh, which speaks to the story of a Vietnam veteran, uh, Jerry Cantrell, my musical and uh, personal hero's uh, dad was a Vietnam war veteran and Rooster was uh, was his dad's story of surviving Vietnam. Um, also, songs like uh, Guns N' Roses' Civil War, Metallica's One about World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, when, even though these songs did not come out with the songwriter's political stance on war, uh, sometimes even at all nonetheless you know being hearing these stories and in that non-euphemistic raw fashion still yeah that hits you you start developing feelings about this person and people like them and what they've experienced and is this you know if you think about things like war for example you know should we maybe think twice before putting somebody through um you know, having to take their pills against mosquito death and uh, their buddy breathing uh, his dying breath, right? You, even though it's, even if it's not overt, it's still going to have that effect of uh, communicating a political ideal, Um, not only from a person who's affected, but also to somebody who might be receptive. Well, I mean, the first song that came to mind when you started talking about war is, of course, War Pigs by Blast Sabbath. You know, that's probably the first one that comes to mind. And it's it's technically a war protest song. So, all right. Well, I, I know we could talk about this forever, but let's kind of move along. What um, what do you see changing? Um, probably let's focus on metal here. And then, Matt, I'm going to ask you about dealing with metal with your kids, because you're the only one with kids here that listens to metal. But um, before that, Amelia, what do you see changing about diversity, inclusiveness, culture, in heavy metal in probably the last 10, 15 years? Last 10 or 15 years, I would say, especially when it comes to metal in the United States, we've definitely seen, uh, uh, comparatively speaking, an exponential increase in the prominence and number of women and persons of color in the metal scene. Um, 
Alice in Chains and Metallica, two of the biggest bands out there, are now half non-white. Um, Alice in Chains was, was really gutsy in that when it looked for a, a, a new vocalist uh, to replace the beloved late Lane Staley, you know, they, they picked a, a black man to, uh, to be at the front of the band. Um, and now that's, that's not even, uh, not even that big of a deal. Uh, now it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, the fans are accepting and, and welcoming, uh, as, as a whole, um, Hispanic and Latino artists, uh, have been some of them like Tom Araya from Slayer or, um, Robert Trujillo now of Metallica have been around for, uh, for decades. And then with women, um, you know, Hailstorm, uh, one of my favorite bands, Lizzie Hale, uh, the front woman of the band, Hailstorm became the first female fronted band in 2013 to win the metal Grammy. So we've seen a lot of diversification in terms of race and gender within who's prominent. And we've even seen some increases now of women of color, uh, entering, uh, entering the metal scene. So that's been some changes too. Also in terms of where it comes from, some of the uh, more artists are now coming from, and some of the darkest music is now coming from uh, rural areas, uh, namely Appalachia, as well as uh, some of the farmlands uh, like Iowa, home, uh, home state of Slipknot. Um, so there's definitely some shifts in terms of who's on the stage per se in all senses of the word. And as a result, we're going to see definitely some different points of view and, and uh, stylist, uh, stylistic changes as a result of what, uh, in terms of the years ahead. All right, before we start thinking about wrapping up, Matt, I'm gonna put you on the spot. You've got two boys that are now college age that are also metalheads. What's it like having two generation of metalheads and how do you got, do you see a difference between how you listen to the music and how they do or how they talk about it? Well, I remember when my younger son, Nate was in eighth grade and I was playing a, a, a stone song and, and he just said, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he was referring to Keith Richards. So, uh, you know, and that was, that was back, oh man, probably about um, 10 years ago. What I guess my, um, my younger son, or pardon me, my older son is actually um, more of a punk fan, but he's open to metal. Um, younger son is more, I think, um, you know, and he's kind of like me, he'll, he'll listen to a lot of different genres. You know, I, I can go, um, I can go Motown to Beatles to Judas Priest and Maiden in the blink of an eye. Uh, I think he's kind of similar that way um, and pretty eclectic. I think um, I, I think that from what I've seen, my kids are open to a lot of different kind of musical tastes. And, and to that point, I think all of the observations that Amelia was making on how um, metal is really expanded as far as its inclusiveness is all to the good because I think it certainly helps reinforce the idea that generalizations and in, in music usually fall apart at any particular point of scrutiny. This is a good example of that. And I think also that inclusivity is really good and, and, and indicates that metal music in particular really 
um, isn't restricted by very rigid confines, even how much I think people try to, it's, it's just really hard um, to put specific, you can't put it in a box and just say, hey, that's heavy metal and walk away, right? Um, as far as um, my kids listening to music, you know, they've got a, a broad array of tastes. And um, I think they're, if I had tried to censor them from the outset, yeah, I mean, we're, we're way beyond warning labels, right? So I think that would have been a failed endeavor from the start. I, I do remember when I um, took my older son, Brendan, to Green Day for the first time. I did have a talk with my wife and kind of worried about um, lyrics, F-bombs, other things that Billy Joe was known for. And, you know, I just pointed out that Brendan had played hockey for over five years and anything that Billy Joe had said, he probably had heard in the locker room anyway. Um, um, and, and certainly I think there, you know, in, in metal bands, at least that we've listened to, there was nothing out there that would be epically terrible to the point where I wouldn't say you could listen to it all. Some of it might be a conversation and others, other elements of it just, I think, provoke some interesting discussions and dialogue. You know, I mean, probably my biggest legacy, if you want to call it that, for better or for worse, is exposing my kids to Iron Maiden. And Maiden has a lot of historically themed songs. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you can talk about um, the Crimean War, if you listen to The Trooper. There's, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that I think has led to um, a lot of good talks with my kids and just, um, you know, other metal fans that you run into too, you know, people sometimes are surprised. I think if you're coming from academia and say, you know, and then you all of a sudden someone finds out that you're into metal and then, you know, you just have all sorts of other talks that come up that probably wouldn't have otherwise. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to have everybody kind of give their final thoughts. My first one I like to share is that, Heavy metal was actually one of the very first genres I listened to that addressed mental illness. Um, mental illness and suicide um, have been uh, the topics of several songs, and they never approached it from a soft way. It was, this is what is happening, especially depression, bipolar. Um, so that really kind of figures into politics and history as far as I'm concerned. So I'm going to pass it over to here to you, Amelia. Why don't you do your final thoughts, and then we'll let Matt do his. So um, kind of like how... Mel has kind of opened the doors and also it's, uh, you know, along the vein of what Dean Loaiza has said about uh, people are surprised sometimes when you're an academic and a metalhead at the same time too. So metal was the way that it was the thing that opened the doors to me to a world that I never dreamed that I could ever be a part of or would ever be a part of. And that is academia. And so the, the thing that got me, the thing that, you know, made me decide to go on the pursuit of a PhD was when I thought, gee, let's research metal for fun when I was in a research methods class in my master's program. Well, lo and behold, my professor who was very supportive of this, uh, Dr. George Davis of Marshall University, forwarded me an email that was a call for papers for a conference, academic conference um, on metal. And it was just to show me that yes, there are people in the larger 
scholarly conversation who take an interest in what I love. And it, it got the gears going. I, I thought, wow, this is a door that could be open to me. And, uh, and, you know, the rest is history. And so just like metal literally opened the door to me, a first generation uh, student from West Virginia, um, you know, having a PhD is, you know, it opens the door to so many people, period, who may have never had a way to enter the social and political dialogue and in the way that they see fit and in covering things that nobody else would talk about kind of like what you've said pat so it opens it opens doors it may not be the most traditional doors and it may not be the most uh, happy sounding doors but nonetheless it does open some very needed doors and uh, opens the doors to some very needed conversations that we need to have very needed pat Matt, your final thoughts there, sorry. Uh, for me, I think um, I was first attracted to metal by a lot of the, you know, the visual iconography, uh, the lyrics that really, I think, you know, if you look at uh, many of the 70s and early bands, you know, just had this kind of air of mystery, a uh, little bit of edge to them, whether or not it would be, for me, it was less Sabbath, probably more Led Zeppelin, um, couple of others that that drew me in and really, really um, epic themes that uh, were pretty eclectic and spanned a variety of different um, realms. And since I was starting to get interested in history at that point too, it just kind of fit right in. Um, you know, and it leads you in a lot of different ways. I mean, the funny thing for me was just, I mean, this is back in the day when you could go to music land and just flip through album covers. Um, when a friend of mine just randomly said he wanted, if he was interested in knowing if I'd go to a Grateful Dead concert, all I knew about the dead was their album covers with the skeletons. And I actually assumed they were metal. And then that was obviously a big surprise when I hit up that concert live. So, you know, sometimes it takes you in unexpected directions, but really um, just um, a lot of, it, it's like a weird carnival ride with a lot of, loud fun on the way and um like amelia said um you know although i think early critics would have dismissed the possibility of having insightful interesting conversations on a variety of social issues um i've certainly found that to be the case and i think like both of you hope that continues because um you know as you know there's certainly no shortage of uh topics to talk about and any insights we can get from wherever I think are going to be needed in the in the years ahead. So with that, yeah, horns up and rock on. Well, with that, thank you both for joining me. As I said, we could talk about this for hours. We might come back to it again in a future podcast. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash let's talk gov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode and thank you for listening.